to Intelligent Machines and Medicine, conversations about artificial intelligence, machine learning, and healthcare. This podcast is brought to you by Mayo Clinic. I'm your host, Adria Hoffman, and I invite you to join us as we explore the potential of AI in medicine and the big questions that guide our work. I was delighted to welcome Dr. Shauna Overgaard to the podcast. Dr. Overgaard holds a PhD in Health Informatics and Biostatistics from the University of Minnesota. She works at Mayo Clinic as a manager of the AI translation team in our Center for Digital Health. We had a fascinating conversation about the role of translational science in AI and healthcare. I hope you find our conversation as valuable as I did. I particularly appreciated the big questions that she raised and the opportunities that she presented. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. I am so excited to talk to you because you work in a really important area. So you're a translational scientist. Could you tell me what that is? Yes, I try to figure out how best to get functioning machine learning solutions or models into clinical settings to help improve the care patients are getting and in doing that, supporting our clinicians. What does that mean on a day-to-day basis? What does your work look like? On a day-to-day basis, I might have meetings with clinicians to understand their current workflow or problem things that they're hoping to improve in their clinic. I manage a team. And so much of it is talking about the strategy for how we approach some of these problems on a larger scale, trying to create, I guess, scalable solutions or replicable forms of evaluation. And then in doing that, I think solving some of the problems along the way. To give you some examples When the team first came, we were asked to develop a solution um, and implement a solution. And one of our scientists said, are we sure that the clinicians really want this? And of course, that's such an important question to ask. But even I had just been functioning under the assumption that work had been done to really get to the bottom of what it was that clinicians needed or wanted. But one of our scientists Dr. Josh Odi, he he's trained in implementation science and um, part of this translational science PhD program here at Mayo Clinic. Much of his work is observing or shadowing clinical workflows, trying to understand each step in the process, and then also asking a lot of interview questions, speaking to patients as well when he has the opportunity. It may be that somebody could misunderstand it. You're not doing tech support, but it might be. Somebody might imagine that description as tech support, like, oh, we're supposed to implement this new app and somebody comes in and helps us learn how to do that. But there's more to it than what you do. There's there's more science behind yeah. the work that you do. Yeah, no, that's, that's, yeah, I think that's a great point. So the field in general has been thinking, and by the field, I mean, my training is in informatics. I see informatics as a study of information and the way information is put together, including the way that the statistics function behind our models. As we were approaching how to go about evaluating models for clinical settings, 
something that really struck me is that scientific evidence is the language of trust in healthcare. And that came from one of my mentors, uh, Gretchen Purcell Jackson from the American Medical Informatics Association, who is just this brilliant scientific leader in the field. This isn't a new problem. So there is a translational problem in basic science into the, the translation into clinical settings. So we think about drug discovery, for example. We think about different new innovative procedures in medicine, the pathway that needs to be followed for it to make have the foundation or basis of evidence-based practice. Thinking about it that way, I can think about it, AI translation as how we might approach clinical research. And generally, there are multiple phases that say a drug needs to pass through. Those phases typically go discovery and intervention, technical performance and safety, efficacy, review of side effects, and therapeutic efficacy, and then safety and effectiveness. As we were working on this tool, I thought, can we structure something for evaluation of artificial intelligence? And what does it look like in this field, rather than a basic science or drug, taking a model and translating it into clinical practice? How might you describe the process or approach that you take when learning about the needs of clinicians? We might consider user-centered design work, what sort of user requirements we can gather that through stakeholder interviews and then whether or not these requirements are likely scalable. So are they specific to one individual who'd like these, or is this something, a broader problem that might be positively impact the practice? And if so, should it be implemented? And then also just to map some of the outcomes that we're deriving from our models into future prospective study or clinical trials. And so just having that in mind as we approach the problem and do workflow evaluation, are the outcomes measurable, for example? And then moving from there, we might think, all right, well, does the user experience design research work does this fare well with what we're how we're approaching either a prototype design? What is the population we hope this will generalize to? Are the data readily accessible in general? What's the quality of the data, uh, for example? And how do we go about stating that? What are the metadata, the data behind the data that need to be captured in order to be tracked? And then also making sure that say the features or the variables that are collected for the model are in fact truly indicative of a clinical or, or clinically backed. Is there evidence in the literature to support the likelihood of something like this um, impacting? We need clinician engagement at the outset of the of the work. We need to speak with clinicians about those those problems, understand what are what are the struggles specifically. And then once we, we advance there to keep them in the loop for the entirety of this work. What would you like for clinicians to know about this work to help keep them engaged? I would love for clinicians to know that the work that we are trying to do is enable them and help them be innovative. I feel that I'm I've developed a sense of empathy, but what I've recognize is that there's somewhat of a disconnect sometimes as to what 
AI or ML really can do or really can offer because it seems grander to some than what it really is. What do you mean by grander than it really is? Describe that a bit. When we get into things like just the output of the model, for example, or how we construct the model, the concept of correlation versus causation, a lot of our machine learning or models are really relying on these correlations. And because of that, we don't have scientific backing to say X caused Y. Now, so we're looking at more of a, a pathway sort of circumventing an actual cause and effect. And we're observing, uh, we're observing a relationship. And while that might be enough to bring us closer to a greater value in a clinical setting, it's it can be dangerous if we don't engage the clinician in the development of that model or algorithm, because they're the ones who have to make a decision based off of what has um, occurred. And if we can properly explain how to interpret something or how this relationship is functioning, then I think we start to empower our clinicians to make decisions that don't have to rely on their trust of a system that they've just been given. We have highly capable clinicians um, who've got incredible training. They need evidence to bring a new addition into their way of thinking. And I think a way I know a way that this can be done is to test it. Where does it become an iterative cycle? There are several instances where it might be iterative. One is certainly trying to gather information on the workflow, on their understanding on the needs that the that clinicians have. And part of the reason it becomes iterative is because we present our findings objectively, scientifically to our clinicians and we have feedback. And so this often sends us back into having more questions or more unique uh, focused questions to ask. Similarly, as we're working with our data science team, as they're developing the model, they're gathering data to input in the model, we're having conversations with them about whether the data that they're extracting from the clinical record are in fact complete or representative of what, what they need in order to be able to create that model. And so we go back and forth there. Um, further, when we start thinking about the output of the model and how it's to be used, or even the presentation and understanding of the output. We talk with clinicians about things like thresholding. Like what, how would you like to see this presented to you? Someone's at high risk for asthma exacerbation. Would you like to see the probability score? Would you like to see high versus low? Would you like to see both? Do you require an explanation about how this was constructed? Would you like to understand all of the features that were included, knowing that we're focused on correlations? Is Are there other pieces of data that you'd like to see presented in addition or beside the output? And I think that that will differ from practice to practice, from the type of model that's implemented, from the implications of the decision that need to be made, whether something's very high risk or not, whether a conversation needs to be had with the patient as well, like looking at this together. 
those are some of the iterative pieces. And then I think something I think that we will need to start scientifically evaluating more is evaluation bias. And so when we think about the response time that a clinician has in making that decision, does that differ based on any specific factors, such as how much information is presented along with the model? Do we know that? This actually starts getting into some of the FDA recommendations. So clinicians you know, need to be able to make a decision on their own. And if that's the expectation, how long is it taking them and and why? What sort of information are they being given if it is in fact to augment their scientific decision-making? You know, clinical practice is a really busy work setting. How might you design and test some of these models without disrupting that workflow? There's discussion in the field right now about silent monitoring of the algorithm. So having it functioning in the background and perhaps not changing anything in the clinical setting and just seeing like, did this make sense along the way rather than always relying on retrospective analysis? Like, do we have an opportunity for prospective analysis and evaluation? And can we do that perhaps without disrupting anything in the clinic to make sure that things are functioning well? And then we can sit down with our clinicians and have a discussion about the way that algorithm functioned and to go through, make tweaks um, again before it's in a clinical setting. So um, I want to go back to something because there's there's two things that are jumping out at me right now. One is the idea of scalability. Yeah. If we're talking about a tool that can be scaled up and used widely, then it doesn't seem feasible to have those conversations with every user of that product sure. or that tool, right? As I consider that, and I consider your initial thought around scientific evidence as the language of trust in medicine and healthcare, the first thing that comes to mind is the trust or lack of trust with vaccines. What does that look like if you're not explaining the algorithm each time to each patient and to each clinician? Right, exactly. To complete complete the, um, the thought or the question on the clinicians in that regard, we can get a sufficient or sampling of clinicians from different perspectives and then use that to, I guess, infer whether or not that would be effective. And then more so when we think about the output of the data, we also think about the patient population that it may be impacting or the algorithm may be functioning on. Uh, To your point, this is another thing that we're trying to understand and act on is are the models that we are creating based on a specific site's data also generalizable to other sites that so really scalable. So even thinking of Mayo Clinic practice, if we develop an algorithm in Rochester, a model in Rochester, we know that the the patient population base is not quite like the other sites um, for Mayo Clinic. And how do we test that and how do we understand that? And so I think one of the ways to do that is to run tests at other sites as well and draw the comparison. But before that, consider retraining our model on those data. Again, doing this silent evaluation so we're not disrupting patient care, but we're getting information. 
another thing with the patience and the concept of scalability, it's not unique to artificial intelligence that patients want to be included in this work. You can think of you know, subsets of the population. I think of clinical trials where women were you know, finally welcomed to participate in them. I think specifically to the, the population that we're hoping to assist with the tool um, is the sample representative of that population. But what about really understanding what it is that patients want? Do we have a clear understanding or description or relationship with patients to now understand whether or not they feel that they have ownership over their own data. So what I'm hearing is also a question around ethics and consent. Yes, exactly. I think that understanding the limitations of the tools, I think that those are the conversations we should have with our patients. You know, that brings me back to this idea of how humans actually put things, how do they operationalize things? So it's not the tool itself, but it's that middle space between having a tool and using it in an ethical, not just an ethical way, but also an intentional way. I could not tell you how my car was designed, but I know how to use it in a way that reduces the possibility that I might do harm to someone else while driving it. Right. So there's there's a conceptual understanding as well as a technical understanding of how to drive the car. Mm-hmm. And we also know that even though there's many of us who've passed driving tests, there's a wide range of skill levels out there on the road. Understanding that that we're human, <laughs> we're mere mortals, and the yes. wide range of how we practice what we do, whatever that is, if it's driving a car, if it's practicing yeah. internal mes- medicine and using a new AI-powered product, for example. You phrased that point really well. I think that something that will help the field is to understand that these models can improve and that the data that we generate can then improve the accuracy or improve our understanding of how to, to do this work. And I think that's a that's part of why we need to have patient engagement is so that we can take these steps together. And for that reason, I think similar to having patients or, you know, central to their healing, to their treatment, there needs to be the autonomy or at least the understanding to choose to say, yes, I want to make these changes in my life. And also, why am I making these changes? We're we're touching on this multidisciplinary team. We're having discussions with our scientists, our clinicians, our, um, those that implement folks in the workflow. Um, there, there are many different aspects, our ML ops, software engineers. These are conversations that we're having. I think that where the translational scientist is, that's where you'll have these iterative dis- discussions. But a way, something that we've, again, been really working hard on is are the tools that we can develop in order to support this process So it sounds like another way to describe the work you do or the role that you have is you're the connective tissue between all of the different parts of the being. Yes, absolutely. Excellent. That is, that makes it so much more clear. I kept picturing a wagon wheel with multiple spokes. 
Mm-hmm. And, each yeah. one, and each one having a different color or touching a different piece of that puzzle. And mm-hmm. you all sitting at the center going, okay, well, how does this actually intersect? How yes. what are the connections? And if the connections aren't there, how can I ensure that the connection gets made? Well, and yes, exactly, Adrian. And then take it a step further. So these connection points, when we talk about, say, a learning health system, so when we talk about storing data to help us make better decisions later, some of that work has to do with what are the data that we want to capture as we go through this whole process to make sure that we're enabling not only the care of future patients, but of of the enterprise. Are we creating a system that can be scalable and useful for Mayo Clinic, not just a one-off solution. How would you summarize your individual goals, your individual professional goals? I want to empower clinicians like my husband and my friends to own the science of AI, not necessarily need to do it, but just to understand how it can augment or support their expertise, like maintain them as the expert, thinking of it as bolstering their intelligence. I have seen all of the the textbooks and the hours of lectures and all the very technical things they've had to memorize, but I know that there's they're missing like as in they they wish they had, they're missing that human element sometimes. If AI is going to work in healthcare, it needs to be the patients and the clinicians that decide, giving them the tools to think through problems or to leverage some of these tools is important. Before we go, I love asking guests a couple of big wonderings. Mm. So your game for just rapid fire, or as a friend of mine calls it, knee-jerk response. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the first question, what tool do you wish you had in your life to solve any kind of problem? I would like something to that I could carry around or that I could somehow put into the world in every decision. So like this scalable, scalable tool that could apply to the right now or the larger, grander purpose or vision. And that would focus on graph theory. So I would like to have like a graphical database of sorts that I just float around and I see all of the connections to everything. I love that. <laughs> right, next question. We talk about trustworthiness a lot when it comes to machines. Yeah. Thinking about people instead. Mm-hmm. How do you know you can really trust someone? Well, you don't. You don't know for sure. But where I like to begin is by giving everyone the benefit of the doubt. I like to assume that I can trust all until proven otherwise. And even if proven otherwise, I sincerely believe that people are really good at heart and that people can adapt and change and improve. And I think similar to artificial intelligence, this concept, I don't know that I can trust an algorithm 
in that sense, I certainly wouldn't put it out blindly without understanding really the inner workings because others rely on my ability to critically evaluate something on their behalf sometimes. I think that's the difference. For example, if if I were the one who needed to critically evaluate another human being on behalf of my children, that would be an entirely different story. So, you know, you think about the advocacy. For me, it's it's hugely important that I'm doing, I'm making the world a better place. And I have some degree of, I think, healthy anxiety in knowing that we have the potential to disrupt care. And in doing that, I want to make absolutely sure that we're doing everything properly and that people can, in fact, trust. So I want to give them the evidence of that. Thank you so much. This has been such an interesting conversation. I've learned so much from you today. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk about it. 